Once upon a time, wife took her husband to the doctor. He was, he was really sick. She took him to the doctor and said, hey, doctor, can you help us figure out why he is sick? And so the doctor ran all kinds of tests, came in and spoke with them. And he said, your husband's illness is due to stress. And the husband didn't hear her very well, so he leaned over his wife and said, well, what did the doctor say? And she said, he says you're sick. The doctor goes on and said, yeah, it's, all, it's due to stress, and I think that you can actually help him significantly uh, by reducing his stress at home. So when he comes home from work, don't just immediately unload all of the problems of the day. You know, just ask him about his day and how he's doing. Make sure he's got a hot meal in front of him. Maybe every evening you could rub his shoulders and take care of him. And husband leans over and says, what did the doctor say? And his wife said, he says you're going to die. <laughs> Everybody dies. That's the uh, bad news. Everyone dies. We all age and grow old and will pass away. It's the universal experience. Interestingly, just this last week, I read an article by uh, this tech billionaire who has decided that he will be able to figure out the key to immortality and he will in fact live forever and he will fail. Everyone dies, but why? Why is death the universal experience? And then how is it that through the act of one man, Jesus Christ, that can actually be overcome. Uh, What we're going to dive into here in the second half of Romans chapter 5, Paul's going to explain, in a sense, how justification works. He's going to explain the the principle of representation. Now, if you are uh, an Aggie, you understand this intuitively, but let me put this in kind of cookies on the bottom shelf for us Aggies. Every Saturday, almost in the fall, we are represented by our team. But uh, none of us, well, actually, I take it back. There, there may be a few uh, folks who play on the Aggie football team who I know attend here on Sunday morning. But for the rest of us, we, d- we don't actually get on the field. We don't put on a uniform. We don't go through uh, any of the plays. We, we don't do any of that. But when the Aggies score, we score, right? And when the Aggies win, we win. And we say, yeah, because that's our team. We are the 12th man. They represent us and we represent them. That's the principle of representation. Paul's going to explain that in the spiritual realm. What he's going to say is every single one of us is represented before God by one of two men. We are either represented before God by Adam or we are represented before God by Jesus Christ. But we are all represented by one or the other. And if you're represented by Adam, you are dead. If you're represented by Jesus Christ, you have life. So Paul is going to unpack this concept, this principle that the act of one man, Adam, plunged us into ruin and death, and the act of one man, Jesus Christ, gives us life. So remember we said the book of Romans is about the gospel, and specifically the gospel is good news. In chapter 5, Paul's going to say the gospel is good news because the gift of Jesus overcomes the guilt of Adam. The gift of Jesus overcomes the guilt of Adam, and he's going to compare and contrast the work of these two men, Adam and Jesus. And what I want you to think about as we move uh, through the end of chapter 5 and really into 6, 7, and 8 is this. First of all, do you know, are you in Christ or are you in Adam? And do you know that you're in Christ? And if you are in Christ, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself consistently as in Christ or do you continue to kind of see yourself as in Adam and you, your life is defined by your sin, your struggles, your history, even your family's history and your genetics Or do you see that the grace of God through Jesus Christ and the gift of Christ overcomes all of that and changes you and you are now 
in Christ, and that's who you are and affects how you live practically. So, this morning we're going to talk about the guilt of Adam, then we're going to talk about the gift of Jesus Christ. I want you to read with me, beginning in chapter 5 and verse 12. Paul writes, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Skip down to verse 18. So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So Paul starts in chapter 5, verse 12, explaining how justification works. And he starts his argument, but then he kind of gets sidetracked. Right? So he starts with, therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the whole world, death through sin, death spread to all men because all sinned. And then he doesn't actually complete that sentence until verse 18. Instead, he gets sidetracked and he feels like, you know, what I need to explain is why, in fact, is death and sin the universal experience of humankind? Why is it inescapable for humankind? And his argument is going to be that Adam introduced sin into the world, sin introduced death, and then death spread to all men. So Paul alludes back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15. Throughout this paragraph, he says, and it says in Genesis 2, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. So, chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world. Paul is focused here on one sin of one man. Verse 18, notice he says, so then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation. So Paul isn't thinking about Adam's entire life. He's not thinking about uh, all of Adam's sin. He is focused on one sin. Adam was given uh, freedom to move throughout the garden. Notice, from any tree of the garden, you may eat freely. And as we've observed before, when you want to emphasize something in Hebrew, you say it twice. So literally this, it reads like this, from any tree of the garden, you may eat, eat. Adam, just enjoy, enjoy the entire garden, except for one tree. There's only one tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. So there was one law, so to speak, one prohibition placed upon Adam and he violated that one prohibition. Paul is focusing on that One act of sin from Adam. So here's the progression. Therefore, just as through one man and one sin of one man, sin entered into the world and then death through sin. So sin entered in and as a consequence of sin, there was death. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die or you will die, die. He says you can eat, eat. But if you eat from that one, you will die, die. Adam invited or introduced sin into the world. And as a result of sin, death came into the world. 
But Adam didn't die physically immediately, did he? Right? He didn't just die in that moment. But Adam did ex- begin to experience death in that moment. Physically, he began to experience decay. His body began to decay. But also, Adam began to experience death in every aspect of his humanity. Uh, life is found in God. God is the source of life. And so when Adam sinned, he was choosing to live separately from the source of life. And so death spread to his entire being. Let me describe that for you. First, Adam experienced death in his relationships. Death being separation, death being alienation, not cessation. So Adam began to experience death in his relationships. There's, There's death between him and his wife. Eve, there's a separation, there's an alienation, there's fear and shame between them now instead of freedom and love. He's got alienation in his his relationship uh, with God. He's cast out of the garden. He's not walking with God in the cool of the day any longer. So he experiences death in his relationships. He, He experiences death in his intellect. He can't trust his reasoning ability any longer to always lead him to truth. It's not that he immediately became dumb. He became affected by death in his reasoning ability because his reasoning was not completely dependent on the source of all truth, that is God. He experienced death in his emotions. He no longer felt exactly how he should feel. His his feelings didn't always correspond to the reality of the situation. He couldn't trust what he felt. He experienced death in his will. He no longer just wanted to obey God. He wanted to obey God, and he also wanted to do his own thing. He experienced death in his conscience. He couldn't trust that voice within him, in his heart, and his mind to lead him to righteousness and holiness. He experienced death in his spiritual perception, and he experienced death, obviously, in his body. His body began to degenerate and ultimately died. And the point in Genesis is this. That's all unnatural to human experience. Okay, it's universal, so we think that's human nature, but it's not. It's unnatural for people to experience death. We were made for life. But we don't experience life. Instead, there's a universal experience of death. So notice the progression again, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. Everyone dies, Paul says. Absolutely everyone. Adam died and Eve died and their children died and everyone who came from them died. In fact, if you go back and read the the genealogies just for fun in Genesis chapter 5, every paragraph ends like this. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. It is is so repetitious. And he died. His point is the curse actually took effect. Sin entered into the world, death through sin, and then then death spread to all people. Absolutely every single person will experience death. Why? Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. That word for condemnation means the the verdict. And the corresponding punishment is death. So every single one of us is born into this world with the verdict of death hanging over us. And unless the verdict is overturned, it will become permanent. And we will be permanently dead or permanently separated from life in God. Why? Because Adam sinned. Verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul is saying is, Adam sinned on our behalf. 
God sees us as being in Adam and consequently represented by Adam because Adam was the first human, the first person made in the image of God. Now, I was asked in between services, well, didn't Eve sin first? Yes, she did, but she wasn't humanity's representative. Adam was created first, then Eve from Adam, and so God appointed Adam as the representative of humanity. So it was Adam's choice, his one sin. Again, we're not looking at the the lifetime of Adam's good choices and bad choices, but that one sin, the verdict was pronounced, you will surely die. And as a result, everyone who comes from you will die because you have died, in a sense, as their representative. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul puts it succinctly. He says, for as in Adam, all die. So you're born dead. Uh, Corby read that earlier, Ephesians chapter 2. We were born dead in our trespasses and sins. We're born dead because we're born uh, in Adam. He goes on to explain it in verse 13 a little bit more uh, fully. He says, because until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. What he's saying is this, uh, we all don't commit the same sin that Adam's committed, right? Well, we can't because Adam was cast out of the garden. Garden was closed up, their cherubim there, right? So only Adam was ever, in a sense, given that one particular law with that consequence. If you eat, you will die. But everybody keeps dying. Well, why is that? Well, because he says sin was still in the world from Adam until Moses. There are hundreds of years in between Adam and Moses. But he says the law is not imputed until the law. That is, the law, the, the, uh, sin, is, sin is not imputed until the law uh, because the law, in a sense, makes sin obvious. Right? So uh, trespassers will be shot. Right? You, you step over the line, you're going to be shot. This is the line. It's really clear. It's obvious. That's what the law does. But there are sins that maybe aren't um, made, really made clear by law, but we know they're sin anyway. So in my house, when my kids were little, there were laws, some of them even printed and, you know, posted on the refrigerator. Some just, you know, just told, but oral tradition is as good sometimes as written. And I would say things like, one of the laws was, don't eat food in your room. If you do eat food in your room, not you will die. There were, it was a less consequence than that. But there was a consequence to it, right? But if you eat food in your room, then we're going to get ants in the room and bugs. So don't eat food in the room. Don't store food in the room. Don't hoard food in the room. You will be abundantly provided for. There's food in the pantry. There's food in the fridge. Don't eat food in the room or else. There's a consequence, right? But then there are other laws, so to speak, that were just intuitive. You just should know it. Like we had a fire pit in the back, you know, and, and, and I let one of my children the older male child. I let him um, build fire sometimes. And, you know, one of the, the unspoken laws is don't pour gas on the fire, which we're just not going to talk about <laughs> if it happened or didn't or consequence like that. But, you know, it's just like there are things you just know, right? You just know because you're just a human and you know don't pour gas on the fire. What, what's he saying is between Adam and Moses, People were sinning. When the law came, it became really obvious what these sins were. But before that, there was sin. But everyone was dying in between Adam and Moses, even those who didn't commit that exact sin that Adam committed. Why? Because we are responsible for Adam's sin. As in Adam, all die. Adam died 
as our representative. And so what Paul is going to do here is we're going to do a little deep dive in theology for a moment. He's going to talk about different aspects of our sinfulness. The first, when he says all sinned, he's talking about imputed sin. Okay, imputed sin, that is Adam's sin and guilt imputed to our account. It's credited to our account. His sin and his guilt is credited to us because we're in Adam. Let me illustrate. Uh, before we had kids, Tristan and I went to Colorado one time with uh, a bunch of our friends, and we decided it would be really fun to go on a river rafting trip together. So we all went down to the river, and um, we, we were in a, a pretty big group, and we walked to the river, and one of the guides walked up to us and said, hey, why don't you guys get in my boat? And he invited us, and we climbed in to his boat. He's a young guy, and he's super enthusiastic and really fired up. And what we didn't know was that we were his first trip. Not first trip of the day. Not first trip of the summer. First trip of his life, right? We're the first boatload of people that he had ever rafted down. Now, he'd been through coaching and training, right, for a while, but we were his first trip. So we hit the first rapids, and all the boats go through smoothly, except our boat, right? We hit this rock, we flip, and, and several of us went for a swim, and it was true because we were in the boat with him, right? We, whatever he experienced, we experienced. And Paul's saying, you are in the boat with Adam, whether you like it or not. That's imputed sin. There's also inherited sin, because sin uh, became embedded, in a sense, in every aspect of, of Adam's uh, personhood and personality, his mind, his emotions, his conscience, also his body, all of them experienced death and degeneration. So in a sense, um, this, this bent towards sinning became embedded in humanity's DNA. We talk a lot about that when we hit Romans chapter 7. Paul describes that as the flesh. We're born into the world, not just uh, inheriting Adam's guilt, but also inheriting this propensity to think that we can figure out life on our own. It's the flesh, this, this pull toward sin that's been passed down from generation to generation to generation. And then there's also a personal sin, the choices that we make personally, individually to sin. Romans 1 through 3 talked a lot about that, individual, specific sins. That is, uh, we are culpable also of our own sins. So notice what he says in chapter 5, verse 19. For, though, for as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Adam's sin changed human nature. Adam's sin changed human nature. So, you don't become a sinner the first time you sin. You're born a sinner, and that explains why you sin. You have guilt from Adam imputed to you. We're dead in Adam. You also have an inherited sin nature. It's that constant pull, find life outside of God. And then you also have your own personal sins, the times that you say yes to that sin nature and you commit personal acts of sin and validate the fact that you, in fact, were born a sinner. Now, you may hear all, all of that and say, Ben, that just doesn't sound fair. Maybe not, but it's still true. And it's actually, it's a, it's a true principle that we experience in a lot of different places in life. For example, uh, we live right now in a representative democracy. So you have an opportunity to vote 
and we put people in office, and sometimes they represent us really well, and we go, this is really great, and then they don't represent us well sometimes, and you might say to yourself, yeah, but I didn't vote for that person. He or she still represents you. He or she still represents you. You know, I also say, you know, I've been born with certain characteristics. Some of us are taller, shorter, some keep our hair, some lose our hair, some wear glasses, some don't wear glasses. Well, all these things we inherited from our parents who inherited these things from their parents. And we didn't get to choose our parents. We didn't vote on our parents even. We just got our parents. We're born into this family in this certain culture, in this day and age, and we didn't get to choose those things. And some of those characteristics we like and some of them we don't like, they're just ours. This is just, this is how life works its way out. And maybe you say to yourself, yeah, but I, would, I wish I was just held responsible for my own personal sin. That alone is enough to sink you, right? And as I've thought about that, this, this whole concept of these different aspects of sin, I, I come up with all these kind of hypotheticals in my mind and I think, what if I was the first person? Would I have done better than Adam? No, I would have failed faster. I know myself, I would have failed faster. And sometimes, honestly, I, I feel a little sorry for Adam because I just imagine, you know, Adam's got his little room up in heaven now and, you know, people die and they walk past him and he's just kind of sitting there in the corner going, sorry, 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 right? It's like, oh, man, you know? And I feel sorry for Adam. So I think, you know, when I see Adam, I'm just gonna go and hug him. I go, it's okay, buddy, it's okay. I would have failed too, Don't, you know, it's okay. As in Adam, all die. Is it fair? I don't know, but this is how it works. This is how it works. We're born dead because we're in Adam, but because we're born dead in a representative, because God said this one man is going to represent you through his one act, also he can allow us to be represented by another. And so Jesus didn't have to die for every single one of you over and over and over and over again individually. Instead, one act of righteousness through Jesus overcomes the guilt and sin of Adam. Paul goes on and he says, as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now, I acknowledge, I, I get more excited about attaching to the good and <laughs> rejecting the bad, right? I'd, yeah, I'm, I'm good, I'm good with being identified with Jesus. I'd rather not be identified with Adam. And it was interesting as um, we were talking about it, all, all the guys who were teaching this week, uh, we do a little call each week and uh, just discuss the passage. And I learned something from Matt Morton. He said that there's actually a psychological principle that's been validated that we attach to the good and we want to reject the bad. So I'm, I'm going to share this with you because I thought it was really interesting and fascinating and I learned something this week. Uh, it's called Berging and Corfing. Okay, these are two acronyms, Berging and Corfing. Berging stands for basking in reflected glory. Berging, basking in reflected glory. So uh, when the Aggies win, I say, we won. Even though I didn't really do anything. Corfing is cutting off reflected failure. Cutting off reflected failure. The Aggies win, I say, we won. The Aggies lose, I say, they didn't play very well this week. They, they, their defense really wasn't sharp. Their offense was sluggish. Their coaching wasn't great, right? So I bask in the reflected glory, we win. I cut off the reflected failure. But the fact is I'm in Adam, but I can also choose to be in Christ. 
because he's offered me Jesus Christ freely. And the good news of the gospel is that the gift of Jesus completely overcomes the guilt of Adam. Let's read in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more, those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. So Paul will say, at the beginning of this paragraph, Adam is a type of Christ, or he's a likeness of Christ. That is, each of them stood as representatives of all of humanity. But what Jesus did was much better. Notice the repeated phrase, much more, much more, even more. The grace of God and the gift of Jesus Christ overcomes the guilt of of Adam, both served as representatives, but in a sense, that's where the comparison ends. Because both were tested, and Adam failed, and Jesus succeeded. Both, both were tempted, and Jesus said no to the temptation, and yes to the Lord. Adam was tempted, and he walked his own way away from God. Jesus was tempted, and he walked in obedience to the Father. And was it difficult for Jesus to obey? The answer is yes. Remember Luke's description, Jesus is in the garden and he's praying to his father and Luke says, his sweat came down like drops of blood because he was in agony. Obedience was not easy. Instead he prayed, he said, Father, cause this cup to pass from me. That is uh, the cup of suffering and separation from his father. Because if he took the sins of the world, he knew that there would be a rupture, a fracture in the Godhead. There would be a fracture in this relationship that he had enjoyed for all of eternity. This one relationship that in a sense is the most valuable thing in all existence. And he said, Father, if you can cause this cup to pass from me, that is, if you can create reconciliation between men and women made in your image and yourself in any other way, that's what I desire in this moment as sweat came down like drops of blood, but rather, not my will, but yours be done. Because God's answer was, no, there is no other way. And so Jesus said, yes. Adam walked his own way. Jesus walked in obedience. And the result was much more effective than even Adam's sin. And so it's not just a, a difference of obedience or disobedience, but of outcome. Adam's sin brought death, Jesus' righteousness and faithfulness brought life. As Jesus would say in chapter 10, verse 10, John, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That is our enemy, our adversary, the devil, can't create anything. He can just pervert. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus said, but I came that they may have life and that they might have it abundantly. Not just a little bit of life, but a lot of life. All the life. I'm going to restore absolutely everything that I intended for people. Notice again the, the contrast. Verse 16, the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, judgment arose from transgression, resulting in condemnation. Judgment, transgression, condemnation. On the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. Free gift, justification. Verse 17, transgression, death, abundance of grace, gift of righteousness, eternal life. This is what Jesus provides. Now, it's not fair, so to speak, but I'm really glad that Jesus is now my representative. And that I'm no longer in Adam, but I'm in Christ. Verse 20. The law came in so that transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul ends his argument here. Uh, Grace wins. There's a triumph of grace. The law came in that transgression would increase. Where sin increased, uh, grace super increased. Grace abounded over and over and over, abundantly abounded beyond all that you can ask or imagine. That's the grace of Jesus Christ. So let me illustrate. Imagine that you get a phone call tomorrow. It's from a lawyer and says, you know, you've got a long lost uncle. You don't really know him well, but um, apparently he left you everything. You're in his will. So I need you to show up. We're going to unseal the will uh, down at probate court. We're going to open it up. We're going to read it. And uh, you get it all. So you show up at court, judge breaks the seal, opens it up, and he begins to read, and what he reveals to you is this, um, you inherit all of your uncle's debt. That's it, there's no money, there's just debt, you get it all. He's 10 million in debt, sorry. Also, you have another uncle that you didn't really know very well, and he walked in before court started, and he wrote a check for 100 million. So your debt is paid, and you've got 90 million extra, you're good. Or imagine it like this. You walk up after the service. You say, Brian, I'm really thirsty. I say, no problem at all. I want you to hop in my private jet. I'm taking you to Niagara Falls. You good? Where sin increased, grace super increased. It's super abounded. It is more than adequate. The death and burial and resurrection of Jesus for every man and woman and child, for every sin. And it doesn't just remove your debt of sin. He gives you eternal life, but he gives you purpose in life now. And he puts his spirit inside of you and he begins that process of changing you and remaking you into the image of Jesus Christ that you experience all that he intended for you. And he seals you with his spirit so that your hope is absolutely certain and secure and you're adopted, you're a son, you're a daughter. You have a super abounding grace, even when you fail. And maybe your mind immediately jumps, you know, okay, well, if God's grace super abounds to me, even when I sin, is that permission to sin all the more? We'll talk about that next week. Because that's where Paul anticipates our minds would go. And he's going to say, now you're missing the point. Why would you possibly abuse grace? like this, when you actually understand it. Paul writes in Colossians 1, he rescued us from the domain of darkness, the realm of Adam, and he transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, how do we apply this? I'm going to give you uh, three thoughts, and usually I'm not clever enough to alliterate, but there you go, you get three R's. 
this week, okay? Three R's. First is receive. Romans 5, verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. That is, the abundance of God's grace through Jesus Christ and what he accomplished is more than enough, but you have to say yes. God is chasing, he's pursuing, he's initiating, but at some point he he says, I'm not going to coerce, I'm inviting you. And you have to personally, individually say, yes, thank you. Thank you, God, for overcoming uh, the debt of my sin, my guilt in Adam, and also my personal sins and paying that price through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that one act of righteousness. I say, yes, thank you. So I would encourage you, if you've never had that moment where you personally said yes and you received the gift of eternal life, maybe uh, this morning is that moment where you can just say, thank you. Thank you, God, I received. Uh, Second, reflect. What we're gonna kind of be poking on over the next several weeks is this. How how do you actually see yourself? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you think about your identity. Is it it stuck? Is it rooted in uh, past sin? Maybe even present habitual sin or maybe sin that was done to you and generations of family? Are you you stuck in a sense in, in Adam? Or do you, have you begun to understand that you're, you're not actually in Christ? And if you're in Christ, you are not a slave of sin and you are not a slave of death and you're not a slave of fear. And have you begun to really actually understand how to believe that and live that out? I want you to uh, read this week Romans chapter 6. And I want you to meditate on Romans chapter 6. And then third, uh, let's rejoice. Whether or not you're really feeling that you're in Christ this morning, it is actually true. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not in Adam, you're in Christ. And so we're going to close by just taking a few moments and, and thanking God for that and rejoicing. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we do give you thanks for Jesus. And I pray that more and more uh, we would live in the reality that we're in Christ, we're not in Adam. We're not slaves of sin and death. And we not only have eternal life, but we have life now. And we can begin to walk faithfully and powerfully, victoriously in Jesus Christ. I pray that increasingly you'd make that a, a reality and that as we, as we keep working our way through the book of Romans, that the Spirit's words through Paul would become uh, true in our experience. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.